This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller, founder and CEO of Empire State Properties. In our mission to learn about what's happening in the world architecturally, today we have with us a very special guest. He is the managing partner and principal of Gensler. Welcome, Joe Brincato to the Miller Report. Nice to be here, Suzanne. Thank you. Joe, I understand Gensler, and by the way, Gensler is the largest architectural firm probably in the world. I know your firm is known really not just architect, but also design. So before we start, tell us about Gensler and tell us why you call yourself more design than architect. Well, Gensler is, I, I don't like saying we're the largest firm. It's the truth, <laughs> uh, but I like to say the leading firm. Oh, okay. Thank you. And, and in the world. And um, the world. The, the, and what, what we have is, the reason we're, we talk about a design firm, we, we are an architecture firm, but design is critical to what we focus on. We have interior designers, we have architects, we have graphic designers, we have product designers. So it's, it's really about the, the creative nature of our work. And that creative nature, when you combine a few disciplines together, really are able to achieve some unbelievable creative solutions. So I'm going to jump right into what everybody's really talking about, and we're going to get into more of a de the detail later, but the big issue is the empty office space and what's going to happen in every market because of all the vacancy. So I want to ask you, as a design firm, first of all, when you go back and you look at the numbers, many of the people, even in the 80s, I don't think we were at 100% occupancy. So what do, now we're at what? Where are we now? Oh, it's interesting because it varies from city to city, but maybe above 50%, 55%. There was more people in the office pre-pandemic, uh, but not that much more. Interesting. <laughs> right? I mean, just think about it. In the, in our, in, so here in New York, Fridays, you know, especially Hamptons. in the summer. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there, it, it wasn't as, as busy. You know, people travel for, for their, for their business. Um, there was always flexibility pre-pandemic. I mean, if somebody had to go to their child's uh, ball game uh, one afternoon, they they did it, and they had a doctor's appointment, they did it. They had flexibility before. Uh, so look, the numbers are, are are pushing, seem to push up. There's no question that a hybrid work environment uh, is here to stay. Uh, you know, it's gonna I, that that won't that probably won't change. But I do see more people across the uh, across the U.S. coming in. It's interesting. I was on a, uh, a panel. I, I moderated a panel um, about about uh, three four months ago, a real estate panel, and I was asking uh, some of the real estate heads of a few technology companies. Uh, it seems that your CEOs have changed. Cha you know, I've done an about face. They said they never needed. To there people come into the office again, um, you know, in 2020, 2021, they were saying that. 
Later in 21, they started saying, well, you know, we'd like to get people back. Is that because they have leases? They need to fill the spaces? Uh, I don't know if it was about leases. I think it probably has to do with the long-term good health of an organization. I agree. And being together, yes. you have a culture. You have to build your pipeline. Uh, so I asked them, they started saying, okay, now we're supposed to be in three days a week. I said, okay, how often are people coming in? You know, three days a week is about 60% of the time, right? Um, he said, 15% in the United States, wow. 15%. So I said, why do you think that's happening? And, you know, if the CEO said he'd like to have people back three days a week, he thought about it and he said, um, in the entitlement. Mm. He also, and then another uh, panelist said disrespect, which was really interesting. I stepped back and I said, wow, those are pretty hard words. Um, I asked them, what is it like in your international locations? And uh, he said, no, we're full. We're full. They're back, and uh, they've been back for a while. Matter of fact, I'm starting to lease more space in a few of the markets outside the U.S. I said, that's really interesting. I think that once we give these migrants uh, work permits, we'll see some competition in the market because there'll be more people will be looking for jobs. What's your opinion on that? Uh, I think at Certain levels, most of the migrants are going to, uh, that will get to work, yep. um, probably are not going to be working in uh, white-collar jobs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not going to be working uh, in, in the professional sector, the healthcare sector. Uh, as, as doctors, they may get jobs and get trained. We have to make sure that we're enabling uh, some training yep. for these people so they can uh, be productive. So what do you think you could do on a design side to make it more attractive so people want to come to work in the workspace? Well, you know, it's really interesting. You know, we, Gensler, we have a Gensler Research Institute, and we've been running workplace surveys for many, many years. Um, the latest survey we ran had 14,000 respondents, uh, office workers, and it was interesting. We listed, you know, a handful, uh, maybe 10 items of why somebody would want to come back to the office. Tell me. And, you know, we all know that collaboration is, is critical. And in-person collaboration right. is, is very important, especially in the creative industry. We're working in teams and yep. you, you kind of bounce off of each other ideas and, you, you know, you start building. You want together. to have coffee and you want to meet your friends and right. go for drinks after. Right. That's really uh, important. But the number one reason people said they would want to come back to the office is so they could do their focus work, right? That's kind of interesting. Maybe you and I could do our focus work at home. Maybe, we, you know, because we may have, uh, you know, we may be empty nesters or we may, you know, have a big apartment or a big house and we have room to do that. But a lot of people do not. And they want to come back so they could do focus work. So it's really interesting because it will change the work environment. We have to, maybe there will be some more enclosed spaces, not just lot of open, open plan. There'll certainly be a lot of collaboration spaces, but people's main work area, you know, even if it's in the open plan, there may be more enclosed spaces for them think. to go. Yeah, you remember right. the days that people went to the corner office, they wanted to think, they want, well, everybody wants that time and they, it's some prestige that comes with that. Did we lose all that? Well, I think that in order to do their job and to enhance their career, um, you know, they want, they, they have to deliver and, uh, you know, by being able to do their, the type of work that they need to get done at that moment, you know, they, may, they may need 
more quiet space. So what's happening now is we see more people getting back to the office. We have to create a great experience for the employees, not just within the office space, but as they approach the office out on the street, as they enter their building and their lobby, the amenities that may be in some of the buildings uh, are become even more important. Outdoor space, really important. People want that. Do you think Hudson Yards is a good example of that? Uh, I, look, I think Hudson Yards has a lot of very positive uh, aspects to it. I mean, you have you have some out, you have plenty right. of yeah, outdoor space, and you have transit right, you know, that gets you there. Uh, and they, it is a mixed use district, which I think is really important. People can live there. Some people can live there, right? I mean, you have the office space there. You have retail. So the mixed use nature of Hudson Yards is 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 really good, and I'm I'm sure there's going to be more to come that will enhance the district. I really believe uh, in our central business districts, uh, particularly here in the U.S., many of them, even here in Manhattan, you know, we have our office space in that central business district, whether it's downtown or midtown. But what we found is during the, you know, the start of the pandemic, that first year in 2020, when people were not coming into the office at all, a lot of those small businesses went out of business. And they were, and from a security standpoint, maybe not as good in the central business district because there weren't people there. If we could convert some of these old class B and class C office buildings to residential and make it more of a mixed use district, I think that's going to be better for, for, this, for our cities and our central business districts by becoming more of a, a multiple use in, in those areas. And I really think we have to focus on making our cities better. And if we do that and create, you know, creating, through, and I think through design and big thinking, we're going to be able to figure this out to, to really improve the quality of life for people. Well, that would be amazing. So you're saying take some of the business districts and make them in these B buildings and make them residential. Yes. Well, that's not so easy because you've got egress and you've got elevators, you've got light. So take us through that. So it's not, look, it's not a new topic. Everybody's been talking right. about it. Uh, a, matter, a matter of fact, uh, we've, we've created a tool to be able to, from a physical standpoint, evaluate these, these buildings to see it, how they work for conversion. There's a, there's a, a rating system, basically a scorecard. Mm. And if you score over 80, there's a good chance from a physical standpoint that it'll, it'll be a, can, a good candidate for conversion. And that, you know, that first step is really important. Uh, it's quick because we have a lot of data, we created a few algorithms to run, to run it, and we're really able to start to understand which buildings make good Maybe sense. Maybe you could share with us like one or two? Uh, very specifically, we've been hired by not just the private sector, the developers, the real estate finance companies to evaluate portfolios or specific buildings, um, and, and, but we've also been hired by cities. Wow. And we've been hired, the first city we were hired by was Calgary. Canada. Because they had a big problem. <laughs> they had a big problem before the pandemic in regard to vacancy, and, and, and uh, you know, they worked up their incentive package uh, in a very successful way, in a very quick way, in a simple application, uh, and that's gonna, they're going to increase their downtown uh, population by, by 20% in the next 10 years. Could you explain what you mean by in, their incentive package? What do they do? How so that? that one they kept very simple, mm-hmm. and they gave a certain amount of money per square foot for specific buildings that they knew were, com- were, were good candidates for conversion from the tool we used. And they said, if you convert these buildings uh, from office to resi, We'll give you a certain amount of money oh, per that. square foot. So it was very simple. Now, we've worked with other cities as well. 
uh, Chicago and Boston to help understand the buildings that may be convertible. And they've been working there, trying to work their incentive package, but it gets very complicated. And so uh, I believe, well, I know that um, we've been in conversations uh, with the White House and, and Housing and Urban Development Group, HUD, and in terms of really taking a good look of a national effort to create the right types of uh, incentives to encourage some of the conversion of B and C office buildings, because there's a tidal wave coming. Oh yeah. Tell us in the next five years, there's return of keys, $1.5 trillion of mortgages coming due. And the interest rates are going to be very different than the, uh, then than the interest rates they, 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 they're locked into now. And so, yeah, the keys will get turned over and the banks don't want the keys and so really need to be strategic. One, it's, it's interesting because the feds are stepping up. I think that's going to be really important. I think that's a smart, really smart move. And, but, but also, uh, you know, the, the real estate finance companies, the banks, they also have to work with the developers to help figure out what, you know, what those next uses could be or what the upgrades can be. And we're seeing a lot of potential for office to resi. We have a big residential problem in this country. Um, but, you know, we're also seeing some offices to medical. We're starting to see office to education. Well, that would be great. In certain areas, you have urban, you know, some urban campuses uh, uh, for, for higher ed. That they're starting to look at some of these buildings uh, to convert to education. So it's, there's, it's a really interesting time. I have to tell you, as, as, as difficult as it's been uh, with the pandemic and, and, and the changes and the uncertainty, it's really pushed us to think a little differently uh, about what the future of our cities would be, what the future of our offices would be, uh, even the future of almost everything. How, what should residential look like you know, going forward? So, you know, it may seem like it's taken a lot of time and, it, you know, maybe more time than some of us would like to start to figure this out or, or, or get behind it. But I do think that it's going to be much better for, for society overall uh, if we make the right moves. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. Well, guys, I hope everybody's listening to this because you really are boots on the ground. I think that you pretty much know what's going on all around the world, not just New York. So let's just switch to the world for a minute. And I know one of your areas is Latin America. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk to us a minute about what opportunities are there and what growth do you see there and how are they doing? So we, you know, we're a global firm and we have great focus and, uh, offices and a number of offices in Europe and in Asia and China uh, and Southeast Asia. Uh, I started our offices in Latin America uh, around 2000, the year 2000. And uh, it's really interesting because there's really, there's great opportunity, but you really, really need to become local. 
and we have we've become local uh, on on the design on on the design side, working with the private sector and the public sector to deliver really really good buildings, becoming uh, as well as uh, interiors, bringing some really good ideas. But we're also learning from them. Uh, yeah, every culture is different, and we're learning a lot from them. Just this week, actually, in the last two weeks, I've met with at least a handful of major uh, Latin American developers that are here in New York, that came to New York. And there's, there's big opportunity. And I think Latin America is sensing the opportunity they have um, from everything from, you know, nearshoring, friendshoring on the industrial side and the housing side, they're starting to, to, to really you know, reconsider how they're housing their, their people. I think there's tremendous, tremendous opportunity, but it's not easy. It's not easy. How is the multifamily dilemmas handling? What's happening in Latin America there? Well, they, they have a significant issue the way the U S and many places of the world. It's, it it is a significant uh, issue. And one of the developers I was with has a very large um, piece of land in one of the major cities in, in, in Latin America. And, uh, they're going to develop it now. It was an industrial site. It's going to get cleaned up. Can you tell us which city? Uh, Sao Paulo. Oh, fantastic! And and you know, it's right adjacent to two favelas. Wow, the ghettos, and they want to embrace those those areas, and they're going to provide housing, a step up for housing. Uh, you know, and 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 try and integrate in a way uh, instead of just building a wall and turning their back because typically that's what's happened in many places uh, in, in Latin America, in Latin America where uh, you've built, you know, you've built some, some, some nice housing and, uh, and then there's, there's a fence or a wall around it. And you know, we're starting to shift, shift a little bit. I hope my investors are listening. Maybe time to buy in San Paulo. <laughs> so back here again, um, 421A is, is gone. We know that. And I, every time I talk to a developer, I have developers from all over the world that are telling me they're sitting on properties they don't want to build. Why would they? They're capped on their rents. They, they're capped on the incentives they can get to build. But yet I'm reading that there was 60% more permits given. Is this true? Uh, it's, I believe it is. I'm not sure on the numbers. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it, like it, where? Where are they building? Much in the in the boroughs, mm-hmm. you know, you look you look to see in in, in uh, around the in Gowanus. Obviously, it's been going on for a while in, in Williamsburg and different parts of Brooklyn, and now they're starting to shine a light uh, up in the Bronx and in, in, in a number of locations. Uh, so, and I think this is a really good thing. That's exciting. It's really exciting. And, you know, it's not just building the housing and taking site by site. We really need to have a strong plan, a strong urban plan, a master plan for these areas, these districts, so that there's some connectivity to the rest of the areas around. uh, And so that you're uplifting, you know, entire areas, not just one building or or a few buildings. And I think the public realm is incredibly important. If we create a really great streetscape, if we we upgrade some of the parks, uh, you know, creating, you know, plazas. And, uh, you know, I think these are, these are great value to everybody in a community, not just that one building. And so that I think becomes really critical so that we are thinking bigger and not just about an individual site. So how do we reignite multifamily in New York? Like what, what could we do value add from a design side to get this built? What, what's your, I mean, that's really what we need. 
You know, it's really, it's really interesting. I don't have any answer. Uh, okay. I don't have the silver bullet, but I, know, but I, I, I can but, tell but you. But you're the expert. So I can we, tell you. <laughs> just, it's just an opinion. There's yeah. no right or wrong answer yeah. here. I think there's really smart ways to, to really look at, at buildings. Obviously we got to, we have to try and, and, and construct a little, a little less expensively. Right. So maybe there's, there's more mo- modular work, uh, uh, design where different parts of buildings are built off site and brought in. Mm, I like that. Um, Speed is important. Quality is important. Um, but maybe even maybe a smarter locations. We just finished a, 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 a building in uh, in Boston. It's uh, you know they're micro micro units. I'm like how really? small? Uh, two ninety to three three hundred fifty square feet. These used to be called pods, right? Yes. Yeah. These are small, and but what they have is basically they have amenities in the building that are on steroids. They have Big kitchens, big kitchens for people. If you're going to have guests over to cook and a number of them, they have, uh, you know, libraries, uh, where people could do some quiet work and get out of their unit. They have outdoor spaces. Um, so a lot of things that would go into a unit are not there. And you start to think about who's going to live there and they're building them close to hospitals and universities. So, you know, maybe students, when they get out of school, first apartment. Uh, and they like the social aspect of these amazing amenities where a lot of people are using these amenities. Um, it may be people that are now empty nesters and they live in the suburbs and, you know, it's cut off their commute. Maybe they'll, you know, get in one of those units and stay there two or three nights a week. It's per, you know, on my company, Empire State Properties, we found it furnished. So that's exactly that's it's right. a peer-to-tier kind of situation. New York is becoming more and more of a second home market. So right. even people that have left New York, all those hundreds of thousands of people, they're still coming back for small apartments. So I think right. you're right on. I think that's a great idea, and I think there should be more of that in New York. Are you, are they building any of that in Manhattan? They're, look, I know some of the developers are looking at sites, and 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 they are you know, reducing the size and increasing the amenities. Uh, maybe not as small as 300 square feet, but I'm certain there are it's developers all they need. out there. It's two right? nights a week. You can't you can't get a hotel room. Exactly, exactly. I I think that's what there's different types of Residential for different stages of people's lives. Uh, so it's not, you know, you can't buy that big house and have your children there in right. the suburbs. And, you know, at some point you're an empty nester and you have this big house and you're paying big taxes or you have a big apartment and you don't necessarily need it anymore. So there's different stages of uh, people's lives as you need different, different residential solutions. So what about the secondary markets? Like where are they? Where, what cities? seems like the secondary markets have really benefited a lot uh, over the last four years. Um, people are coming back, though, to the, the, uh, the major cities. Uh, but we have seen, you know, there has been an outflow. You know, places like Boise. I mean, na- you know, Boise? Nash- Boise. Boise, Idaho. Nashville. Uh, we, we're, we're seeing some of these, these, these other areas. San Antonio. Um, people have moved to some of these other areas, you start to look at some major cities um, and you start maybe an hour out and you start to see uh, clusters of development occurring. Uh, It's, 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 it's happening, but those major those cities have to really think about the planning, those secondary cities really think about the planning because once you shift some of the zoning and you're starting to get big city problems, not problems, uh, challenges, whether it's transit, uh, pedestrian pedestrian access, um, you know, they, you, you know, you have some of the other issues around 
security, making sure that you have the mixed use, trying to create walkable communities. You know, we've believed you're involved in all of that when you're building, when you're planning. You have to think about that when you're doing, when you're working on a, a planning, urban planning That's project. Fantastic. And you know, we, we really think a good solution is the, what, what you've seen and heard probably many times, the 20 minute city, a 20 minute district right. where you could basically walk or ride a bicycle to just about anything you like need. Like Europe. Right. Exactly. Right. And that's really enjoyable. I love getting to some of the cities in Europe right. and, and, and just walking uh, and seeing and, and getting whatever I want and being surprised when you walk down a small, a narrow, narrow street and you pop out into a big open plaza with lots of activities. So these are, this is, this is really important. The 20 minute district, walkable district, focus on people, not necessarily on the automobiles. Of course you need to bicycles. Like yeah, bicycles. We, we here in, in, in the States, we've created bike lanes and now we have e-bikes that they're not, you know, they're not very well coordinated necessarily with the pedestrians and, and the cars are trying hard and really doing a nice job, but we've got to get better at it. It's dangerous. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah, I know. And especially with congestive pricing, when the bicycles will be an issue more and more, but because you are an international firm, I'm really curious in today's market, tell us a little bit about what's going on in Europe, internationally, around the world, outside the U.S. Where are some of the big projects? Can you share with us anything about that? Yeah. The, the, uh, as we step back and take a good look at what's happening, the U.S., we're doing, we're doing fine. There's work. Uh, not as much, but there is, there is work. Uh, if we get to, uh, you know, greater China, there's not as much work really there right now. And that's challenge in terms of moving projects forward. Uh, Europe is, 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 is really, you know, coming back. Uh, they've had many issues, but you know, we're, we're, we're busy there. Um, and Latin America, we're very busy. And some of it is really large projects. We're talking about creating new, new neighborhoods. You know, the project I was talking about yesterday's is a, is a, is a large project. There's two or three of them. One of them is is uh, somebody had, had, we had met on something that was over twenty thousand hectares of new development. Where? Uh, so one was in Brazil. Uh, one was in Colombia. You know, there's also so there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of activity on in industrial in some of the uh, some of the cities in Central America and in Mexico. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of action there. Southeast Asia, some areas are starting to pick up. Vietnam is, is definitely picking up. Uh, there's, there's lots of questions. Lots of uh, questions around the world. You really are boots on the ground and you see everything going on. And I like that you said that the landscape has changed. We have to go with it. There's opportunities. It's exciting. But how do you think the future is going to look for the whole workspace? If you just had to like close your eyes and say, what is the new workspace going to look like? You know, I like to think that we've closed our eyes and we've created some really interesting uh, work environments for, for our clients already. And, you know, there's certainly an infused hospitality feel. People have worked from home for a while, maybe less formal, uh, multi many spaces to go within a work environment to get work done, depending on what type of tasks you're doing. Uh, and we have to make these workspaces commute worthy uh, so that people are, do, are getting in. They are building their bonds. They have multiple spaces to get their job. Done. And personal space. Personal, they need their personal space. And that's why we have to create that, especially for the focus work, which was really yes. interesting. 
Uh, you thought it was all about collaboration. Yes. And it is very important collaboration, but focus space really critical and cannot be overlooked. And it may change the environment. You know, a lot of companies created the bench, you know, used benching systems and a lot of open plan and uh, they'll still do that, but they're also going to have to supplement uh, with certain enclosed spaces. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting time, but like I said, we're very optimistic of what's coming and what we're, what we're doing now, the types of things that, that we're exploring, you know, real estate and corporations, you, the head of real estate usually was reporting to the CFO and they still do many, but, but the, the head of uh, human resources is now getting involved mm. because they realize Quality. their greatest asset is their people. And they need to really understand their people. You know, there's still, we have to watch cost, but we also not at the expense of the greatest asset that, that these corporations have. And it's, it's, it's the people. So designing the right types of spaces uh, from, from a quantitative standpoint, but also a qualitative standpoint makes a big difference. And we're starting to see many more uh, directors of uh, human resources weighing in on real estate and the office environment. Well, uh, it's funny that you said about people and humans because my last question is going to go right into that. And that is, what about artificial intelligence? Do you, are you embracing that? Is that part of your, the future? Could it, could it be the next wave of employment because we have to have all these companies build these robots? Tell us what your opinion is on that and how are you seeing that worldwide? Yeah, so, look, AI, it's really quite interesting and there's a dystopian side of AI, but you know, we're looking at it really much, very much as a tool that could enhance the work that we do. Um, still need human beings to understand it. To, you need the human beings to create the right prompts uh, to, get, to gather information. But those aren't the answer. Uh, they're, they're a start. And, and so it's really, it's not what AI will do to human beings. It's what human beings can do with AI to enhance uh, the environment. It's really about, uh, they start, they can start uh, providing some ideas based on really smart prompts, uh, but it's really the creative storytelling that, that we need to do. It's taking it, taking, taking it to the next level. So some of, the, some of the things that we do now, we may not need to do. You know, example, code, building codes. Well, the building codes are AI. You're going to ask a question and it's going to tell you right. what the answer is. Zoning. You ask a question, it's going to provide you with those answers. Those are really important to get projects going and to, as, as you're working within a project. That's, AI is going to be able to provide a lot of that information. But when you talk about creativity, uh, you know, you really need to, the human touch is not going to go away. So, I think that we have to learn. We've, we've been building, uh, we've built our, our, our Gensler vision for AI, our vision and strategy. Uh, it will adjust and be enhanced, but you know, we, have, we have a team of people that have been working on this and, and really exciting. I'm not, a, I, I mean, for me, I, I'm, I really need somebody to help me turn on my, my computer. I don't, you know, I'm not a tech person, but I can, <coughs> but I can tell you that uh, there's really smart people here that are learning how to use uh, AI and going to continue to learn how to use it again for the good of, for the good of, of, of people, I believe, you know, we're, we're here. We believe that, uh, you know, through the power of design, we can improve society. We can improve environments 
that make a difference for people. So I think this will, will be used in a smart way. It could be, we got to be careful not to push the wrong buttons. But I think I'm, I'm on, I'm looking at it on, the, on an optimistic way. So next year when I interview Joe, it's not going to really be you. It'll be a robot. It could be. Could he answer all it these same be. questions? No, 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 no. It could be. Uh, they could answer some questions. They may not be right. <laughs> they uh, might not be as good looking. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> anyway, uh, Joe, I really appreciate you coming on the Miller Report. And I think that um, the world needs to hear what you're doing. And you're doing it not just in New York. You're really on the forefront, on the ground, boots on the ground. Like I said before, you see what's going on. You're optimistic. Any message you want to tell us? Well, well, it's, uh, it's, it's a time of uncertainty, as we all know. I mean, whatever, whatever it's the events that are happening around the world right now or just, you know, my, our profession of architecture and design. We all have impact. Many things are interconnected, but we need really strong leadership mm-hmm. at every level. Our leaders have to have the courage to, to, to make the decisions uh, that they believe in and and and. and, and Listen to our listen to the to to the people and help make the right decisions to move to move forward. We cannot waffle around issues. We've got to move forward. Uh, the more we leadership waffles, the more difficult it gets to really be able to 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 live our lives in the way we we want to live our lives. And and so courage and leadership is critical. Uh, looking looking out right now. So um, we've continue to work with many, many people who are informed by many, many people around in many different disciplines. Um, but we have to make the right decisions going forward. We got to make the decisions. We can't be afraid. We can't be stalled. I, I could not agree with you more. And we have to make America great again. And thank you for coming on the Miller Report. Dear listeners, thank you for coming on my podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please download, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much. Bye.